Thank you to the sponsor of this season of the Healthy Dog Pod, Field Day. Field Day is an Australian-made and owned dog health and wellness brand that creates products to help your dog live the best and healthiest life, inside and out. Field Day has a range of whole food meal toppers that target the top four health concerns for dogs, joints, digestion, anxiety, and skin. They're also really easy to use. You simply add them to the food that your dog already loves. You can also look after your dog's skin and coat health with Field Day's brand new grooming range. Field Day also donates 1% of all online profits to Pets of the Homeless. This is a charity that works to help keep vulnerable people and their pets together by alleviating the burden of providing essential pet care during times of hardship. You can shop the Field Day range online now at fieldaypet.com.au and use the code HDP10 for 10% off site-wide. That's HDP10 for 10% off. Now it's time to get to the Welcome show. Welcome to the Healthy Dog Pod. I have Ian here as always. And today we have Kim Brophy. Hi. Hi. Thanks for having me. Thank, Thank you. you so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. Um, for people that don't know you, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. So um, my background is in applied ethology, but I'm also a certified dog behavior consultant and trainer. So practicing uh, in family dog mediation and dog training with the public, with clients, and um, also working behind the scenes to do some professional education in the industry to bring ethology back to the conversation of our understanding and dog behavior. Pretty cool. Yeah. I, I love that term, family dog mediator. I absolutely love it. And, and there's, I know that there's a reason why you use that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It would, you know, it's funny because what that came out of being challenged by a group of marketing folks who said, if you had to describe what you do in three words, what three words would you pick? And I mulled over it for months and months and months, right? It really just took the task seriously. And, and, you know, dog trainer never felt like the descriptor that made sense about what I felt like the meaning of what I did was. It felt like, well, sure, that's something I do, like a tool you pick up and put down, but not the heart of what I do for a living or what matters. Um, and so family dog mediator is what came out of it. And this whole idea of you're just trying to get these two species to get along at the end of the day, you just want to bring one from one side of the table and the other from the other side of the table, help them understand where each other's coming from, listen to each other's needs, each other's asks, boundaries, communication, clean all that up, put a little plan in place, make some compromises. You know, it just, it felt like it worked. It was so much more on point to me. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Like, uh, in our, it, and for me, it's all about just making sure that we set people up for success. Like, if they're going to need help with their dog, like, what are they signing up for? And that term, dog trainer, just never sat well with me. It's mm -hmm. something I do a little bit of, but not a lot of. Like, I, I sit, like you said, like, sit down and talk with them and help them assess the situation. We will try and come up with resolutions that, don't necessarily involve much behavior change in the moment because often the moment is setting the dog up to fail. And right. ultimately I'm going to leave after two hours. I need you to be able to train the dog, not me. And so right. me training the dog is like a small, small facet of what we actually do. Yeah. 
Yeah, and and I think so much of it is, um, at least in my experience, setting those expectations uh, and and shifting those expectations through explaining about what's really happening scientifically, not even just saying, well, I think, and I'm projecting that your dog is feeling this way, but being able to back it up with good ethology and also some relatable examples that they can kind of tap into from their own life as also being animals. Like, how would you feel? Which I do think is a scientific question um, considering we're all animals and then helping them perceive what's really going on and then shifting all the conditions And then ironically, a lot of the times you find out, oh, I don't even have to do any training there. Like all that work that we've spent so many decades in the industry and honestly still do of creating these really complicated behavior plans. It's not that you can't, but A, it's invasive. And sometimes we shouldn't because it's not in the best interest of the dog or the family, but also sometimes it's just the long way around. Like you could really just shift a few little variables in the situation and you're like, great, problem solved. I didn't have to train the dog at all. Yeah. Yeah, close your blinds. (laughs) <laughs> right. <laughs> Easy stuff here. Yeah. But, you know, actually, I was just talking with someone last night in our Facebook group for the course about how um, she, so I, I gave 10 of my top hacks. I've got about a hundred hacks and I put 10 of them in the course, my favorites, and someone was trying them out and was just like, this is so amazing. It's crazy how easy this is. And I would have done this a longer, more complicated way before. And I was saying how it's funny how, especially when you're new to this field, you feel like you have to prove yourself. Like you're like, I shouldn't, I shouldn't take a hack way out. Cause then that's like the shortcut, right? I'm not proving myself as a master dog trainer that can like get this cool obedience out of this dog. And then after a while you realize, well, what is that about? Like, what do I have to prove to this dog or this family? Yeah. Like my, uh, I don't know, I think it was probably two things. Like back in the early days when I was doing that sort of thing, I don't know if it was, I think it was two. I think it was ego, my own, and lack of confidence at the same time. Oh, yeah. And they're pro- I mean, my, my need to, what I've probably learned since then, you know, growing up a little bit is my, my need to prove my ego probably stemmed from my lack of confidence. Yeah. And, I was definitely going into people's homes and trying to train the dog like in this really elaborate way and coming up with every single solution to every single problem they've ever had. And so it's so different these days, just actually having the confidence to go in there and sit down and go, hey, look, let's let's actually just take a step back. Sometimes 99% less is more, especially mm-hmm. when these dogs are really fired up, really Nobody's calling, nobody's ever called Bondo Behaviorist because their dog's in a really good place, right? Like mm-hmm. nobody's ever made that phone call and gone, I've got a great dog, mate. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I just wanted to tell you. <laughs> yeah. so, um, at that point in the in the dog's life, it's so it is often so so often about stepping back and really just giving the dog and the client, because the client's not called us because they're having a great time either. So like that space to just sit back and yeah we got we i mean don't get me wrong we got a complaint only last week uh about how we didn't fix the problem fast enough it's like okay can't please everyone but hey it's mm-hmm. life right yeah well and i think part of what we're tackling as an industry is we're changing the conversation right now is we're tackling cultural expectations that aren't even necessarily um, personal for the people, right? They're just things that they've picked up about what their expectations should be for their pet dogs from the industry, 
from other professionals, from marketing, from well-meaning neighbors that don't know any better, your dog should blah, 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 blah. You know, like we've got all these really weird ideas that have just caught on. And I, I, I frankly think the public just doesn't have any idea. I really think they're completely divorced from reality about it. And so our job is to change those expectations, but do it through education real education rather than just kind of dismissing their expectations without providing them some alternatives. I think most of them would be happy to take the easy way if we could give it to them. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think yeah. Um, I, I'd love to get your, I want to dive into that a little bit more because, you know, your background in mythology for, for the, for the average listener, what I'd love to do is just open that door as to what that is and mm -hmm what that lens has given you into your perspective on that expectation of dog ownership? Yeah, um, so ethology traditionally is the study of an animal's behavior uh, in their natural habitat, kind of from a biological or evolutionary perspective. And then um, applied ethology is focusing on those animals that are under some direct form of human control. So whether that's captivity or genetic domestication or both in the case of you know, pet dogs these days. And um, I think what it really helps to bring to the table is it gives us a point of reference for how nature works and this awesome system of checks and balances that nature has for selecting for what's functional in a set of conditions both for the individual so they can like learn over the course of their life in the environmental conditions that they're in. And then actually their genetics can be changed through those experiences in that environment. And then they can pass on that amazing information to their offspring when they reproduce. And so there's just like this awesome feedback system, right? Like if something's working in the conditions, great. It's going to keep happening. If it's not working, then it's going to get shifted. Um, nature's going to throw just some diversity and randomness into the equation too. And then, oh, if that mutation happened to work really great, wonderful. Then that will be repeated in subsequent generations too. And so nature can solve it through learning of the individual and then through genetic selection. And in the case of our captive pet dogs, we handicapped that whole feedback system of the legs, that learning environment, genetics, and self, because we don't let them solve their own problems in their own environments. And we don't let them solve their own problems reproductively. So they're cornered, like there's no way for them to actually adapt. So they're becoming more and more a square peg in a round hole. And we're trying to fix it with the same way that got us into this mess, which is us breeding more dogs. And so it's really kind of a predicament that we're in. And then you sit back and you look at it and we're like, oh, the dog's not obeying your commands. What? Like, that's the conversation we're having. And again, I don't blame the public for that. That's, they have been taught, families have been taught that's what's happening. They've been told that over and over again, if you're having dog behavior problems, your dog needs to be trained to be obedient. And that is just frankly, as left field as left field can get when it comes down to the natural sciences. Yeah. I mean, go on, sorry. No, no, I was just, I was just taking that all in myself then. No, go. There's so much, I think there's so much to unpack, you know, yeah. just those little snippets <laughs> from that. So, I mean, okay, you're, First of all, let's go look at the legs model. Uh, the yeah. legs model is something we've been for a long time uh, looking at it ever so slightly differently. Um, but when I came across the legs model, it was, a, it was like a missing piece for us. So we've talked for a long time about what we call the three factors, which is genetics, environment, and learning. And 
the legs model added self. And mm, yeah. what, we've, what we've used it for in the past and what you're using it for is to use it as a framework on how to assess, for me, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, Kim, but like from, it's how to, how to assess why a behavior might be occurring um, because often it just gets mislabeled or oh, the dog is dominant or the dog is uh, you know, aggressive or reactive, but that doesn't really explain much at all. Um, right. But yeah, I love an insight into what, uh, you know, you, you know you've, you've uh, come up with this legs model. Yeah. Well, go ahead, Sophie. No, I was just going to say, I think maybe explaining it to everyone who hasn't really heard of it before as well might be a good idea too. Yeah. Um, you know, so the, the idea is in, in all the kind of natural sciences and in our, in our understanding of how nature works, you know, from the decades of research with evolutionary biology and behavioral ecology and, you know, ethology, neuroethology, I mean, all the different natural sciences that help us understand what's happening. They all point to the fact that just like you guys had already pulled out, you've got the genetics, that's going to matter. You've got the environment in which case, in which the organism or the animal is living, that's going to matter. You've got the learning in those conditions. And then that other piece of just that the individual and what they bring to the table as a one in a million, and then that internal experience they're having or those internal conditions. So what's on the inside, what's on the outside, and then how you learn, and then what you bring to the table with the genetics. You've got this recipe, these four legs. And if any one of those is compromised in nature, there will be something that happens to balance that scale. And frankly, in nature, that could be, well, that individual doesn't live. And that's what it takes to balance the scale so that the system can keep improving based on what's working. Um, and you know, I think it's funny because you said a moment ago, the key element, which is you're learning to look at things as a professional and as a family who has a dog in your life from the why perspective, instead of the how our whole industry is built around how to change behavior and everyone starts there. And it's kind of putting the cart before the horse again and again, like, how can we change this behavior? And it's like, wait a minute, why is it happening? And if we don't understand why it's happening, aren't we going to go about the how part wrong? You know, so and that's it's it struck me like a ton of bricks um, some years ago where I had my background in ethology, applied ethology, and then I was new to the field. And so then I got at the beginning. Yes, there was a lot of ethology. It wasn't necessarily integrated really well, but we were being taught it 20 years ago. And then very quickly, we moved strongly into the behaviorism only lens. It was like that was the only valid science, at least here in the US. And so all the emphasis was then about how best to change behavior. And we got further and further from those why questions and answers. And I think that that's, that's the chunk. That's the piece that's missing. Um, and you know, I don't know if you saw it on my Facebook, but um, we've recently got, just as of yesterday, an infograph for like the connection of legs with the whole ABC of behavior. And essentially the idea is that that antecedent of like, what's the triggering event of the catalyst of the behavior, you know, which everyone thinks, what happened to make the dog do blank? You've got to go way back and look at a whole lot of variables that are far bigger than that last straw that broke the camel's back to get your answer. Absolutely. Like the, um, having studied that uh, ABA applied, ABA lens like myself, it was, I really loved learning that uh, 
because and it's become a really strong tool in my kit but it is just a tool and but it doesn't explain for me well enough as to why behavior occurs like yeah sure like if you look at it through that lens of oh the dog got the the other dog got too close and so he barked to increase distance sure like on a really really baseline level that that's a really easy way to summarize it but it doesn't unpack so many different things around like why did the dog why is the dog sensitive to the dog in that proximity um right. and yeah like there's so many um i mean the, there's so many misconceptions out there in the public like the like you said about the public's perception as to why behavior is happening is just so skewed um mm -hmm. you know, the notion that it's a bad dog uh is horrific for me i, I it just the I even get, I even cringe when somebody says he's a good boy. Like, really? Mm -hmm. Like that? That for me is not a compliment. That's just somebody that's uh, just not really getting it, not looking at the individual, mm -hmm. and it just makes me. It's like if somebody calls me a dog whisperer. Oh fuck! Just uh, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, compliance is just not my goal. You know, and I think as you start to shift and you realize it's not about compliance, all these values that we've placed on things like reliability. Do, you know, do you have re reliability of commands? Just that phrase is so odd. When you really pick it apart, it's gross. And, and yet again, I don't blame the public. They literally will come in and they'll almost embarrassingly confess to you, he's not 100% reliable in his commands. And they're terrified like to confess it, like they've failed somehow. And that's weird that as professionals, we've put that on the public. I mean, in professionals, a lot of professionals, frankly, still are, you know, they're blaming the public for not being consistent and firm enough about their training, when really you just have these two different beings trying to cohabitate together. Like at the end of the day, that's all that's happening. And that's all that we really need to be looking at is what do both parties need for this to work, right? Yeah. That's it. The word obedience is yeah. something that just needs to be removed um yeah like the, the expectation that anybody is obedient is our twisted relationship like i know damn well that i am not obedient <laughs> <laughs> damn straight <laughs> and uh if if i if i ever if i was to put myself in the shoes to in a state that where I felt that I had to be obedient and even just the language around that like I would have to be obedient it's yeah. not something I would sign up for it's something I would be feeling forced to comply with that's a shit life yeah that, that's right. a really shit life and for somebody I I've and Sophie you're gonna laugh because you know that I say this like all the time but we get pet dogs to make us and them happy that's the whole notion of a pet dog right mm -hmm. and, and so to bring somebody in to our life by choice and then force them to comply is such a twisted relationship mm -hmm. and nobody's nobody's zooming out and looking at that and assessing like oh shit maybe my goals are wrong maybe <sighs> right <laughs> right we're headed in the wrong direction completely and that's why i think we do need a new model you know and i mean I'm not saying that, oh, I've discovered it. Like I like family dog mediation. I'm glad that you like it. I'm glad other people like it. I'm not sure that's the end all be all, but I, sh I sure am not comfortable with the idea of dog obedience training. And um, 
I, I think that, like you said, I mean, you, you can get results through coercion, through obedience centric, you know, this is how it has to be. You'd better kind of thing. Um, but I don't think that's the kind of relationship any of us would just choose. And I think if we really step back, that's also not what we would want for our dogs or our kids. But when we feel like we've lost control and we're getting behavior that isn't working and we've been told the answer to that problem is obedience as a culture, then you just got this loop that's going on in culture, right? Of like, we're, which, you know, of course, Andy calls awesomely the operant merry-go-round, which is let's just go round and round and round and have this conversation of here's this problem, smack a label on it, pick a technique and try to fix it. Instead of like you said, pulling way back and saying, why, why is this happening? What's actually going on here? Uh, Cause most of the behavior with Kathy's analogy of the, you know, Kathy Murphy from beyond the operant, her analogy of the barometer, it's just a symptom of something, you know? And I think a, the, a lot of the behavior problems that our clients have are just the evidence of the welfare issues that they're having. Like, you know, dog training wasn't a thing professionally, even 50 years ago, unless you were training for like military or hunting or function specifically, like, there, there weren't really a lot of professional dog trainers 50 years ago. This is a really new phenomenon and niche. Yeah. It makes people super uncomfortable as well to know that there's a welfare issue. Right. Yeah. That, that we get the phone call for the symptom, where the dog's behavior, the undesirable behavior is a symptom of something in the dog's life not being met yeah. and that's what I will term it a welfare issue because fu fundamentally that's what it is and this conversation that we're asking people to have with themselves realistically mm -hmm. is really not one that is going to sit well with them mm -hmm. um, and it's uh, that's why I think it's really important to create these spaces uh, for that because as, a, as an industry, if we're putting pressure on people to make their dogs comply, then we're compounding these welfare issues for dogs. And we're, we're, we're going to, and, and in Australia, we're seeing dog behavior cases increase every year. Like mm -hmm. the, the mental health of dogs is getting worse. The, the, and, and again, I know that I've listened to you talk in the past, Kim, and uh, it feels weird because in one breath, I feel like I'm copying you, but at the same time, I know them well. I've been saying this for years, but right. the human world has changed so much. Yeah. Um, and we don't live in a natural world. We're forcing these dogs into environments that they're not equipped for. To be honest, like humans aren't equipped for. Their mental health is fucked. So, yeah. To, to expect our dogs to fit a, to comply with rules that were never explained to them in a world that was never built for them. Right. Really weird. 
Yeah, no, I mean, you've hit the nail on the head. And actually, I, I literally remember the moment that I had the catharsis. It was when my son was like four years old and just starting preschool and just meeting the world outside of the farm he was growing up on as this adorable little toddler and tons of nature and all that. And then he had to go into these conditions with all these random expectations. And these days, I don't know if either of you have, you know, young boys, but like the, the, the way that they treat young boys is about as criminal as the way that they treat dogs. And that like young boys are kinetic little creatures that are like wanting to use their bodies and not sit still and they're just like expecting them at the age of four or five six years old to sit still for inordinate periods of time and keep their hands to themselves and not have random impulses and I read this book called um, Last Child in the Woods um, by Richard Louvre and it's it was it just blew my mind and I remember I actually got like really depressed for about a year because I was like oh my gosh dogs are an indicator species for humanity and we're all screwed <laughs> It just hit me that we we are all the, all the mental health problems that are happening to people because we've we've all been we found ourselves in a world that has experienced a rate of change in the last hundred years or so that is literally unprecedented on the in the whole world's history. Like we're living in an unprecedented time where when the environmental conditions and our lifestyles change that rapidly we can't adapt fast enough even if we're in control of our reproduction and then dogs aren't in control of their own autonomous choices and they're not in choice of the, in control of their own reproduction they're they're triply cornered even on top of our experience and we've brought them along kind of like mindlessly i mean i think we're all kind of mindlessly going along with the craziness and the pace of change but we see around us we're struggling, they're struggling. And it's because, as you said, nobody explained these rules to us, like genetically, biologically, you know, as a child, we're just doing the best we can holding on tight. And, and it's a world that it, it is literally changing so fast, you can barely wrap your head around it. Um, and for dogs, all the more so they can't even conceive of the majority of things out there that were like, oh yeah, that's just a segue or a hoverboard. And they're like, what the hell? A hoverboard? <laughs> like humans can hover, you know, like what's my point of reference for that? Of course I'm going to bark at it. That's insane. You know, it's like, it's nuts. These, I mean, these little things, right? Like when I was a kid, these didn't exist. These cell phones, like we didn't have personal computers until I was in like, I don't know, the end of high school or something. Like my family finally had like a PC and I don't think I got a cell phone until my kids were born or something. I mean, it's, it's just nuts. It's nuts. And all of that changes our behavior and our reality. You know, we're spending all this time inside now and dogs were not developed in most cases to spend all that time inside. You know, it's just kind of a ripe for perfect storm set of circumstances. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't this a really inspiring episode? Everyone's going to be like, this is so great. I feel so optimistic. <laughs> no, it's, I think for me, it's, it's quite liberating. It, yeah. For me, it's liberating because what it does, what it, sh what it should be doing is taking pressure off the, the preconceived ideas uh, that people have that they should do to be good dog mm -hmm. owners are made up. And, and they, they need to be just at their own dog, their own individual dog. Like, you know, the, the, I loved learning about that ethology lens that you, you've opened the door to me for on and really just looking at like, okay, we've got a terrier. He loves ratting. 
he he's he's got a real sensitivity to movement um he's also got you know a really strong like chase and prey drive mm-hmm. let's make sure that he's set up for success and let's take the individual dog uh, that we've got i never i don't want to compare him to rover down the road like if i do that i'm gonna fail mm-hmm. and that's you know it's like kids like don't mean so don't have kids but if i was to compare somebody's kid to another one it's not fair it's not it doesn't take the the self mm-hmm. like into into it and we just need to be doing that and for me like i don't feel judged if i don't take my dogs for a walk one day because to be honest nobody else bloody knows <laughs> for one and two i didn't do it for a reason there was a reason why i didn't do it it was either because they had a big day yesterday or he's sick or he's injured or something else that people need to be quite considerate of is maybe I had a big day, you know, like, Mm. and I'll pick up the slack tomorrow, Mm -hmm. but I'm also not going to beat myself up on that. I'm going, right guys, like today, like it's really, we've got the time difference and it's really early for us late in the afternoon for you. I haven't got the boys out of bed yet. Normally they'd be Mm -hmm. up. Normally they'd be running around life throws me curveballs and I just don't really care I just roll do you do you want to hear something funny that like I love to tell people about just because it completely like gives them permission to stop beating themselves up about like I don't take my dogs on leash walks like ever like unless I'm traveling or something and now I do have three fenced acres so we go for a little family walkabout kind of thing in the evenings and just like cruise around and the dogs do whatever but it's I literally walk in my own yard and there are people that would judge that like they need new places and new smells and new sniffaris and I'm like I mean sure some but frankly my guardian gets really anxious when she leaves her territory because for her being on territory is what ethologically makes more sense you know and then I've got an old fart and a toy dog and so for my little crew that I have right now it just hits the nail on the head and it actually is more stressful for them to walk them you know I've got some clients where like depending on the type of dog you see that it actually stresses that dog out more to go on the walks than to have their own yard and um I think the rules like you said that we've painted and applied blanketly to all the dogs out there they it doesn't work you know you can't just kind of homogenize all the dogs and that's the weird irony of the whole narrative of um it's all how you raise them and every dog is an individual is that both of those narratives have actually sought to um kind of remove the influence of the legs in a way it's almost like Yes, it matters how you raise them. Like, again, we're God, right? So like, we're so powerful that if we raise them right, then the blank slate puppy will be what we want them to be. And somehow, if there's anything else going on under the hood, we failed, as opposed to seeing they're an individual because of the complex legs, not despite them. And so if I meet you and I'm like discrediting everything about your past, your culture, your family, you know, your experiences so far, and I think, great, you're just going to be what I'm going to make you to be. To me, that's insulting to you, you know, and, and yet that's kind of what we do with dogs. And then we blame ourselves as pros when we can't pull it off. We blame the family when they can't pull it off and we blame the dog for not getting on board. Yeah. Yeah. I think too, like, I just want to circle back to you saying that you don't take your dogs for leash walks because I think that's really important. 
And I think the reason why people do it is because they feel guilt. They mm-hmm. feel like society is like, you need to walk your dog three times a day. You need to take them to the dog park. They need to socialize. They need to have a sniffari and find different places. And I think people hearing you say that will go, oh, wow, I don't have to do that. Yeah. I mean, and there are going to be dogs that need it. Right. And then there's going to be plenty that don't. And the point is you look at your dog and you find out what happens. You know, if I have a week long experiment where I don't force myself to do that and we just sit in the garden, you know, for like an hour in the morning and an hour in the evening instead, what do I notice? Oh, I notice my dog's anxiety and frustrations actually dropping, you know, and, and I think sometimes people are surprised by that. I, I have yeah, personal personal experience as well. You know, I we've been told for so long, like don't anthropomorphize. Did I say that right? I never get that right. <laughs> yeah, it's a horrible word. Not to do that very often, but I do I can't help but relate it back to a parenting kind of model. Because okay. like for example, like my my individual, I've got two dogs. One of them is an old man. He is legend he just takes life in his stride just loves everything to be honest like dream dog robo dog yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> then the other one and he's a 10 year old rescue that we got with kidney failure and all kinds of sickness. and when you look at him you, he, he should be so broken yet he's not and then we've got a puppy uh well he's two now and you know, for all intents and purposes, stereotypically, he should have fit the mold of, oh, we brought this puppy into our life. He was pure breed. Uh, he should have been perfect. He is so broken. And oh, God, I love him. But like, and I know, like, and I say that in jest because we know that dogs aren't broken. But man, like, he just struggles with life. And he is his own uh, paradox. Like, he's full of energy, but he's an introvert. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, if you took like him on surface level and saw him buzzing around everywhere, you go, man, he's got so much energy. We've got to probably take this guy out four or five times a day. He's a spaniel. He's like, you know, you've got to do X, Y, Z with him. And it's taken me two years to learn this. And mm-hmm. as a professional, but I, so I feel sorry for anybody not looking at it through this amount of experience, but this dog you take him outside and he literally starts to break down. Like it's just met stimulation overload. So we don't leash walk him either. We take him out. We've, we're fortunate enough to have a really uh, secluded area behind where we live mm-hmm. that he can, he can tolerate sniffing for about 30 minutes on a good day, twice a day. If another dog or a, maybe a child's playing in there, He's super social. He likes them he, and he gets excited and happy about it, but then it taxes him for the rest of the mm-hmm. day. So then we have to account for that later mm-hmm. on. We're going to probably see uh, excessive barking out uh, in the apartment because of what, ex- what he went through. And for what looks like quite a novel experience for most dogs and people, for him, and again, it's even more complex because he looks like he's enjoying it. Yeah, it's something we're just going to take into account. You know, that is something we talked about at the course at Wolf Park last week. Um, You know, we had 55 professionals from around the country. uh, And we were this one of the amazing conversations that we really got into was how we'll look at something and we'll perceive that the dog likes it or is enjoying it because they're aroused or stimulated. And 
even if it's a training exercise and they're fully engaged, we forget the role that things like dopamine play in just arousing an animal into action, even if that's erratic, and then even rewarding them for engaging in certain behaviors. And that doesn't actually mean that they like it or that it's good for them in the same way that we could go to Vegas and have a really exciting time. And it doesn't mean it was good for us. You know, it's like a lot of bad stuff could happen in Vegas, you know, but like it might look on the outside. Oh, you're just having such a blast. And I'm like, I've spent my life savings on the slot machine, but I'm having so much fun and I'm really drunk, but like somehow that's supposed to be fun. And people will like literally take all their money out of their savings and go there and spend it because they're getting literally dopamine hits off the whole experience of being in Vegas. But I, you know, imagine that was daily, right? Like this, I I always think when I go to a place like Vegas, like how does anyone actually live and work in Vegas? Because I don't have a nervous system that could support it personally. Like there's no way. Um, They could do a whole kind of interesting examination of the type of human and that like lives in environments like that. And like what's differently about them genetically at a certain point, because the population probably at some point would change. Um, But I, I think for our dogs, it's an interesting analogy to think, that most dogs, especially in urban or suburban environments, they set foot outside their house and they're so involuntarily overstimulated and overaroused by literally everything. Yeah. I, I even explain it to some people. My partner's parents live on a farm in the middle of nowhere and they come to Bondi and there's the beach, there's people, there's so much going on and they get overwhelmed. By everything and they kind of go um can we go back to your house because yeah. this is way too much for us yeah and, you know it's the same with our dogs it's the same thing and they when we put a human sorry they can say that verbally that's a big yeah, difference exactly. right like our, exactly our dogs are saying that in a really really uh different language and you know for you know when we're what I'd love to do is just like give, give people like a bit of an insight into how they can apply everything that we've talked about today. And for me, like go and learn about your dog's body language. Yes. Like learn about what they're saying. Take a step back from what you thought you knew and just go, eh, let's watch him. Let's learn about the body language, figure out what he's saying and go, oh shit, that's a different lens. You know, and actually one of the things that I would like to offer there is... I think that we are so convinced of the divide between humans and other animals that we actually don't even look. And I actually think most of us without any formal training of dog body language and signals, even if you look at a dog's behavior or frankly, most animals behavior for that matter, and you imagine it was a person doing what they're doing, a lot of it will become very clear. You know, like if you go to like touch someone and then they pull back or, you know, um, if you're giving a lot of instruction and the person starts going like this, like, why do we assume that the, the, per, the dog is like ignoring us when they're like, just trying to minimize the threat? You seem really angry, you know, um, even facial expressions, uh, subtle little movements of hesitation or, um, I mean, it's not as mystic as we make it, you know? That, like the pulling back is an obvious one, but even on the other end of the scale, like Otis, the Spaniel we've talked, was talking about, he gets giddy. He's like, mm-hmm. that's a, yeah. really, a really, really exaggerated response 
Mm -hmm. to somebody just uh, to I say just but just putting their hand towards him and he gets giddy like again if you zoom out and put a human in that position Mm -hmm. they're not okay right right Right. And yet we've normalized that. Like there's so many dog behaviors that I think we, we think are just normal and we don't realize we might've bred some serious dysfunction into them, first of all. And then they're in conditions where whatever those behaviors were in their original context, which might've actually worked now, the way that we're seeing it, like that doesn't seem very adaptive anymore. And it seems kind of extreme, um, not very even keel. I mean, there's a reason why you don't see as much of that type of behavior in the less domesticated breeds of dogs, like the natural dog group. You know, if you look at like the Asian and the Spitz groups and Nordic dogs and things like that, like there's less of that behavior. They have this better, well, what was in, you know, and is in all the natural species of this economy of behavior concept where, you know, you don't waste energy being giddy because you would need that energy to survive for the next week, right? But yet we've bred in this normalcy of like excessive spending of neurotic energy and all these breeds of dogs where it's so normal that we just think, oh, that's just a dog. When actually they're all a little dysfunctional at a certain point. Yeah, it's a re- and again, that's really uncomfortable for people to hear, but mm-hmm. it's a really sad truth. Like mm-hmm. that, these dogs that we're breeding for really exaggerated traits are really abnormal in the in a, in a natural world. In in that, mm-hmm. and then we're like, hey, look, you're a bit you're a bit off center, and here's an off center environment, and this is why we all have jobs. right there's a reason that our industry has exploded in the last 30 years and it's not just because everyone started caring about dog training you know it's because all of a sudden we were having serious dysfunctional behavior in the pet dog population and I mean I don't know about you guys with Australia but here there's something about the last five years that is just mind-blowing in the last two years particularly like I know COVID has made it worse but it's unbelievable. I used to feel like the severe cases were like one out of every 10 calls. And now it's like nine out of every 10 calls. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree. I don't know if that's because of, I think the other things are still there. I, I think also my, as I've got more experience, people aren't calling me for that. I know mm-hmm. uh, for, the, for the lesser stuff, but absolutely. And, and so I don't, I don't know whether these things were always there and we just weren't getting the calls because I wasn't experienced enough or if it's got worse. But at the same time, you can't not see that these do exist. And I, I think you're absolutely right. You know, the, this isn't going to change in the current climate, the way things are going. And that's why these, for me, these important, these conversations are so important because the approach of that pet dog that must comply, uh, setting weird expectations of it, and then getting somebody to come in and force the dog to comply to these expectations without actually assessing those expectations, Mm -hmm. assessing what success actually is for that family, Mm -hmm. for that that dog, for the, for even for the, for the dog owner. Um, Mm -hmm. And yeah, it just needs to be, needs to be evaluated. I, yeah, I was definitely when I first started. I remember 
I would exactly do that. Go in and be like, okay, what do you want? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. And then when I started, you know, Ian became my mentor and started working for him and seeing him going into the house and being like, hey guys, let's sit down. Okay, let's assess the dog. Let's assess what's going on. And I was like, what is what is this? The first job that Sophia ever sat in on, we had, and it, we we didn't know this at the time, um, but he was. It turns out, so it was a, a, a married couple, probably about ten years older than myself, maybe twenty years older than myself. Uh, we didn't know at the time, but he was abusive to his wife. He openly admitted in front of me and Sophie that he was abusive to his dog. Oh my God. Um, it was awful. And so, yeah, like this is the first time Sophie had ever sat in with me and, and observed. Mm. Um, and uh, it was quite, I remember this. I mean, you don't forget those ones. And yeah, like just, and at the same time, you, you I'm sitting there and I want to get up and I want to be abusive to him. You know, he's just told me, he's just told me he hits his dog. And I'm like, man, this is, this sucks. But at the same time, we've got to afford space to go okay i don't actually i'm going to apply the same as to a person as what i would a dog there and go okay what's making you feel that way so strongly that you feel the need to do this um and again it came back down to his expectations of the dog mm-hmm. uh we've got a 70 kilo saint bernard uh that with joint <laughs> problems that yeah and laminate flooring that was urinating in the house and you know she couldn't really control it um and she didn't want to go to where he'd set up a toilet for her because it hurt (laughs) so we we had to assess the whole thing i would love to tell you that he stopped doing that and uh everything got better it didn't um for years we carried on working with uh, the family, predominantly the wife, for the next four years, and eventually that ended in him leaving the household because he he wasn't going to change his ways. Um, and we do come up against that; people won't change their expectations, and that's part, that's a really unfortunate part of our job. But hopefully, the things that we could do while supporting that family improved the wife and the dog's quality of life through that time. Mm-hmm. Um, nobody tells you that, like when you sign up to be a dog trainer, no. that's what you're going to do. No. And, and that's what we're doing, isn't it? I mean, we find ourselves in the middle of these really complicated family and environmental, social, experiential dynamics. And the dogs didn't pick it, right? They got just dropped into this situation um, that they had no choice about. And frankly, they're quite bidding given the circumstances in most cases. Um, but you know, this your point about the expectations is so critical because, like, you know, I think we all, when when we have any situation, we naturally, Kathy's really helped me understand this as a neurologist, our brain naturally is trying to predict and anticipate. 
And so it makes sense. We're not bad that we have expectations. You can't not have expectations. They help us navigate everything. I think when I go to the bank, I should be able to deposit my money. When I go to the gas station, my expectation is that I can take the pump off and I can fill my gas tank and I will get frustrated if the thing isn't working. If I wasn't actually expecting gas to come out of it, I wouldn't be frustrated if gas failed to come out of it. Like, and so it, it makes sense that everything we're doing and everything that our dogs are doing is all based on trying to predict and anticipate what's gonna happen so that we can calibrate circumstances. Okay, that's why it's so important to shift something like the model of dog training because if people come to us thinking, I'm calling a dog trainer, you dog trainer, your job is to program my dog to comply to my commands. Like that's not accurate and it's not even helpful really. Whereas what is accurate and helpful is I'm going to come in as a professional between these different species in this family environment. And I am going to try to adjust everyone's expectations and understanding of each other by mediating the situation, right? Because that's what we find ourselves doing, even if we don't want to do it, even if we just want to pick up the tool and train the dog, we're still in the middle of all that. Mm -hmm. 100%. 100%. <laughs> Oh my no way around it. <laughs> <laughs> I um look, I'm going to wrap this up today because we are we're cutting it fine on the time, but I know that we could probably go on and actually unpack this in so much detail for so many more yeah. hours. And yeah. I would love to do this again, Kim. But um yeah, be back on for sure. Would love to. Like it's uh if the more we unpack. The more questions we're going to get asked and uh, we welcome them but we're going to try and stay on top on point but no uh thank you so much for, yeah. for your time today kim um yeah. it's been a real pleasure yeah thank you guys for inviting me it's been a blast and it's so interesting and you know on the one hand disheartening but also encouraging to understand that this is not just happening in the united states and we can pull together internationally as an industry for the families and try to find some good solutions absolutely yeah. thanks so much Kim. See you thank soon. you yeah you're welcome thank you guys bye-bye <laughs>